to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, the journalist Anjan Sundaram, is the author of the new book, Bad News, Last Journalists in a Dictatorship. The book details how the creeping authoritarianism of the Rwandan government has silenced the free press, even as that government is treated as a darling of the international community for its impressive economic gains following the genocide. In 2009, Anjan took a job teaching journalism in Rwanda. He soon saw that something was amiss. His students were harassed, beaten, and one colleague murdered. Other journalists were simply co-opted into the government's propaganda machine. And after speaking with Anjan for this interview, it's hard not to conclude that the suppression of dissent in Rwanda is putting that country on a very dangerous path. This is a fascinating conversation, and I suspect that this book will get a great deal of attention in foreign policy and human rights circles, and I have a link to the book up on globaldispatchespodcast.com. We kick off discussing the history of Paul Kagame and his recent controversial decision to amend the Constitution to permit him to stay in office theoretically until 2034. And now here is my conversation with Anjan Sundaram. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Fokuyama announced in, on, on New Year's Day that he would run for a third term, violating his previous promises is to respect the two-term limit in the Constitution. I think what this tells us is how small his circle of trust has become. It's become so small that he's unable to find a successor or even someone he trusts to engineer a Putin-type situation. Many Rwandan analysts and people living in Rwanda when I was there uh, assumed that he would either cling to power or preferably he would be able to engineer some kind of situation where he kept power but was managed to present someone as a puppet leader. And he has not been able to do that. Uh, It shows that increasingly in Rwanda, the repression has increased in Rwanda. And and, uh, there are very, very few people who are within his circle of trust. Uh, And his announcement comes on the heels of uh, a move by the Rwandan parliament in December, I believe, to alter the constitution to enable him to run theoretically, what, until like 2034? Exactly. So this was kind of stage managed. The parliament uh, and the Rwandan government began a referendum to test whether the people wanted Kagame to stay. Of course, they wanted Kagame to stay. The government announced that, in fact, they found only 10 Rwandans in a country of 11 million people who opposed Kagame's, uh, who opposed changing the constitution so Kagame could run again. And indeed, the constitution now allows Kagame to stay in power until potentially 2034, should he choose to. Uh, 
Uh, so now Pakagami, for, for various reasons that we'll, I'm sure, discuss, is a w- very well-known figure in, in like the UN and international circles. Uh, but could you maybe give us like the brief history of Kagame and, and how he came to power following the, the genocide? So Kagame left Rwanda as a refugee when he was very young, a few years old. And he lived most of his life, uh, formative years, in Uganda in a refugee camp. He, in, 1990, in 1990, uh, a rebel force based in Uganda began an invasion and attacked the Rwandan government, uh, trying to force a coup d'etat and trying to take over the country. That led to a protracted conflict that lasted four years and culminated in the 1994 genocide, during which Pokagame swept through Rwanda and eventually took power. Uh, Over the course of the genocide, roughly a million people, mostly Tutsis and some moderate Hutus as well, were killed. And what goes less reported are potentially tens of thousands or more Hutus that Pokagame's forces killed. And also the fact that Pokagame, during the genocide, uh, refused permission or refused to allow UN peacekeepers to intervene and that intervention would certainly have saved many, many Tutsi lives, but Pokagami feared that the UN would interfere with his military goal, which was to take power. Uh, and and he was, and, and you should note he was a the Tutsi himself. Uh, and I think it is probably fair to say, though, right, that he his his military advance did, is is what finally ended the genocide. Certainly, he his takeover of the country ended the war and ended the genocide. That, that is a true statement. Uh, and so in the years that followed, how did he establish himself um, in Rwanda? And also, how did he present himself to the international community? So he, saw him, he presented himself increasingly as a savior of the country, as the person who, who had rescued people from the genocide when the world, rightfully actually, uh, knew what was going on in Rwanda and failed to act to protect civilians. And Pokagame took this and used it to gain legitimacy and essentially stamp out dissent both within the country and from foreigners. Uh, Increasingly, his government has grown repressive. Uh, The methods that he used, Kagame is a military man, and what worked during the genocide was a military tactic to stamp out the war, to win the war, and essentially stamp out any signs of rebellions that were left over from the war. Unfortunately, that's not a great recipe to run a country and govern a country. And uh, that's increasingly what Kagame has applied to his governance. Uh, there, are, there are very few institutions in Rwanda today. The, there is no democratic uh, form of governance. There's no press. There's uh, very little justice. And uh, power essentially resides in one person, in Pokagame himself. And even supporters of Pokagame will concede that his power is almost absolute. You know, I think it's fair to say, though, that as Kagame had consolidated this power and had become increasingly authoritarian in ways that, that you describe in, in, in your book, um, but as he was uh, consolidating power, simultaneously, Rwanda was undergoing a really profound and robust um, boom, right? It, it was uh, developing pretty tremendously uh, and, and rapidly 
on all sorts of, of economic uh, and social measures. So, you know, from the UN perspective, and, and you know, I've seen him around the UN, I've, I've seen him at various international conferences, he's feted as, as the savior who rescued Rwanda and uh, ushered in this era of really rapid economic growth. But at the same time, he's also clamping down on all sorts of dissent, and there's very little space for civil society at the moment. So it's not new that repression is extremely effective and can lead to economic growth. This has happened in numerous dictatorships around the world and throughout history. Uh, many, many dictators, Stalin, uh, Hitler, not to compare them to Kagame, but those dictatorships also experienced remarkable economic growth in many cases. Uh, repression can lead to, as we see in China, for example, very effective uh, execution of policies. And this is what has attracted many Western donors to Rwanda today. They drop their aid plans and they're executed almost to plan with huge numbers, huge percentages of participation among the Rwandan people, numbers that would be unheard of in other countries. And so this makes Rwanda a very attractive partner for development programs. Uh, so none of this is new as such. Uh, what, the, unfortunately, as has been the case throughout history, repressive rule leads to cycles of violence. And so, as is the case in Rwanda now, it looks increasingly unlikely that there will be a transfer of power from Kagame without violence. Um, and and your, your book, I'd love to talk about your book right now, um, Bad News, Last Journalist in a Dictatorship, which really documents the um, increasing authoritarianism of uh, the Rwandan government and its clampdown on free speech, freedom of expression. How did you come to your story? So I, like many people, so I knew something of Rwanda's war crimes in, in Congo before I went to Rwanda. But I went to Rwanda in 2009. I was offered a job to teach these journalists. And I went in largely oblivious, I have to say, to the internal repression in Rwanda. I was exposed to much of the same positive media that you have cited uh, in our discussion. And I thought... Rwanda was growing. Rwanda was uh, a place of positivity, was rising from the ashes of the genocide, like many other people. What I experienced in Rwanda was very different. The journalists I spoke to, among the first things they said to me was that, well, among the first things they asked me was how my country had acquired freedom, how our, the Western countries had acquired freedom. They, they said, your countries were not always free. How did you win your freedom? And they began to tell me of the incredible repression that exists in Rwanda. One of my journalists was beaten into a coma for questioning Kagame about the harassment of journalists at a conference. During my time in Rwanda, one of my colleagues was shot dead on, on the same day that he criticized Paul Kagame. Two girls were sent to prison for many, many years for insulting him and for writing that some Rwandans were unhappy with their leaders. Uh, others fled to Europe fearing for their lives in exile. And uh, others have joined the presidential propaganda team out of fear. Many just simply stopped practicing journalism. What are the the mechanics of this repression and of this authoritarianism? Like, how does it how does it actually work? The systems are very old, and Kagame has maintained and reinforced these old systems. Rwanda's divided; the whole country is divided into little villages. Each village consists of about a hundred families. Each village has a chief and an, and an informer. And everything that happens in that village is transmitted up the chain until it reaches Kigali. In this way, authorities in Kigali are aware of minute and domestic and private going on in 
every every village across the country, every unit, the whole country is monitored. And this a similar system, this system is incredibly effective. For example, when Kagame banned plastic bags in Rwanda, plastic bags disappeared almost overnight because orders were transmitted down this chain. There is very little privacy in Rwanda. If a visitor stays overnight at your house, people know, the authorities know, uh, the authorities are informed. In fact, you have to ask permission. You have to explicitly inform them. That's seen as a sign of disobedience if you don't. Um, a similar system was, in fact, used to conduct the genocide in 1994 when orders were transmitted from the central government in Kigali to begin the killing. It was astonishing how quickly, within a few hours, people were out of their houses with machetes complying with those orders. Uh, so the system is remarkably powerful, and we see today in Rwanda it hasn't really changed. You know, it's, so I was in Rwanda. I visited Rwanda once in, in 2008, um, incidentally as as part of a press delegation that was following Bill Clinton around. And mm-hmm. my my initial impression was like how almost like creepy it was that everything was so clean and orderly and sterile. Um, it, it seemed like almost out of place or, or out of context. Um, and we had just come from uh, Ethiopia, which is obviously the, the opposite of, 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 of all that. Um, so it was like very kind of shocking to, to see, but uh, my understanding since then and, and where you're telling me that's almost like, like this, this orderliness, this desire, or almost like what we consider in the West, like a, like a Swiss mentality of everything being perfectly orderly and on time and everyone follows direction is, is almost cultural. Oh, you're right. I was just going to say you're right. There is this obsession among Rwandan leadership about order and orderliness and cleanliness, and everything in the country is regulated. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right. So Kagame and his leaders are military, and the systems they understand to be effective are military systems where they transmit orders and foot soldiers comply. Uh, a democratic system a pluralistic system functions in a very different way through debate. Currently, uh, through debate comes higher answers and better solutions. Kagame has not really employed this uh, in any substantive way. They see criticism as opposition to the government. And so uh, part of their drive to make the country orderly is to impose a single voice, which is the voice of the government and the voice of Paul Kagame. Uh, there are no voices that oppose him in Rwanda today. And when Pokagami or the government transmits an order, that order is echoed throughout the country through all public forums, uh, and those orders are complied with. Um, can you uh, identify like a moment uh, when it became like abundantly clear that Kagame was not actually going to be this this savior, but actually was deep down an, an authoritarian an authoritarian? Like some measure of freedom of the press had to exist in order for it to be shrunk uh, to the degree that it is today. Um, so, like, what what were some initial signs that that um, Kagame was was you know not like the the liberal that people might have thought he was? So uh, the signs have been abundantly clear over the years. Kagame has been consistent in his repression, consistent in his attack on liberal institutions in the country and in his co-opting of them so that he maintains absolute power. Uh, This has been gradual but consistent. The difference is that the world has been less eager to call him out in it because people were so relieved 
after the genocide to see a country that was calm. And so that he, he got a lot of leeway. Uh, many of the crimes he committed went uninvestigated, largely with U.S. and Western support, because people feared what would happen to Rwanda were Paul Kagame to be removed from leadership. For me personally, it was a journalist, the Rwandan journalist who introduced me to this world of repression and fear that they lived in. And I kind of became involved somehow when one of my students, Gibson, was forced to go into hiding and eventually to flee the country. And I hid him in my house for a few days before he left the country and to sit with him and watch this man who clearly loved his country deeply have to leave that made me feel the powerful forces that were at work. And that made me realize that there was something hidden under the surface that was remarkably powerful that could force a man to leave his country and to flee into the unknown without destination. What were Gibson's uh, supposed offenses? He, Gibson had worked for Umuseso, which was the most important independent newspaper in Rwanda. Umuseso was also the most popular newspaper in Rwanda. It was so popular, in fact, that on the mornings on which it was published, copies would sell out so quickly that vendors would begin to sell photocopies. And it was notable for its sources. It had many, many sources within the Rwandan government, people who officially worked for Paul Kagame, but privately had misgivings about the directions the government was taking about the repression and would speak out, would leak information to Umuseso which would then publish them. So Umuseso would publish these stories largely anonymous, largely without source, uh, disobeying many of the rules of basic journalism. But time and time again, its stories would prove to be true. And people in Rwanda learned, came to learn that rather than following public announcements in parliament, it was in presidential office gossip that the clues to the future lay. And, they, and this is why Umuseso was so popular. And uh, Gibson had worked for them uh, and authored critical articles of the government. Does Umuseso still exist? No, it was shut down in 2010 during, just before the presidential elections in Rwanda, during which Pokagame engineered uh, a major drive to crush the free press. That's when the free press in Rwanda was shut down and disappeared. Uh, what exists now? Are there any like underground papers or websites that uh, do uh, that do offer like a voice of of dissent? And how are they operated? Not, not at all. None. There's no there is no space for underground uh, activities in Rwanda. People people don't trust their own family members. People don't trust their mothers, and uh, there's there's almost no scope for such a uh, such a possibility. I traveled in Myanmar in 2011, I remember, and I met dissidents there who had changed their personalities, moved cities uh, to escape government agents. In Rwanda, because of the village system, there's no way you can move. People would report your departure and your arrival, and the government would immediately be aware. Um, so there is no dissent at all. The state in Rwanda today is of a single voice, the voice of the government, that controls all the narrative that one hears in the country. And um, I should mention that 
in Rwanda today are many, many intelligent and competent journalists who know how journalism should be practiced. Unfortunately, they fear to practice journalism and they don't do so. And this is to the detriment of the country. So there's an incredible pool of talent within the country who could help Rwanda and help uh, Paul Kagame's stated goals of development. And yet they're unable to, they're unable to exercise their profession, unable to speak up. And this is a real pity. Well, does this village oh. system have a name? Like, does it, does it have like a, like, what do people call it? Just the village system? No. Uh, so village in Kenya, Rwanda, which is a Rwanda language, is called Umudugudu. And so it's, it's the Umudugudu system of Umudugudus. Each Umudugudu has a chief and an informer. And I guess the plural of Umudugudu would be Imidugudu. But I'm not, I'm not a Kenya, Rwanda specialist, so don't quote me on that. But uh, um, it's, it's a very old system of governance. Rwanda is a small country and has been governed by kings, by a monarchy in the past. And uh, it's a country of many, many clans. And this was uh, an effective way devised by the Tutsi monarchy back in the day uh, to govern and rule the country. Um, And finally, I mean, I wonder if we're at something of an inflection point right now with the international community's relationship uh, with Kagame. Um, you saw, which is, I think, kind of surprising, some some real criticism, at least from the United States and, and many European uh, donors to Rwanda, of uh, Kagame's decision to stand for another term. Whether or not that criticism will result in any sort of reduction of aid or anything more than just like you know uh, a, a few you know strongly worded statements is is to be seen. But that kind of of criticism, to me at least, I haven't seen before from the U.S. government. So reports, the annual human rights reports from the DRL, the State Department uh, Bureau of Human Rights, has always been critical and always been quite well informed about the repression in Rwanda, quite detailed even. Historically, you're right. Somehow those reports and that department didn't have much weight, it seemed, in official U.S. government statements. And over time, particularly recently with Kagame's new announcement that he would run for a third term, it seems that those human rights concerns have gained greater weight and become a more important part of U.S. government, the U.S. government's position towards Rwanda. Uh, you're right. I don't think that we're going, we should expect any imminent change in foreign aid or U.S. policy that would affect the relationship in any substantive way. Uh, diplomats in, in Kigali, including American diplomats, always told me that they brought up their concerns about repression with the Rwandan government in private, but it always ended up with them sending a check to the Rwandan government that same weekend. So the Rwandan government has known for a long time that all they have to do is listen to these complaints from donors and wait for the check. So if the next president is is Hillary Clinton, I mean, the Clinton or Bill Clinton, I should say, does have a very, I think, complicated relationship with Rwanda. Uh, obviously, you know, he, he issued a very, I think, moving and heartfelt statement of, of apology at the, I believe it was like the opening of at the Genocide Museum uh, in Kigali. And, you know, when I traveled with him uh, in Rwanda, it was clear that he had this kind of like personal dedication to helping Rwanda get on its feet and at stemming from the failures of, of 1994. And I also recall, you know, seeing, you know, uh, Kagame at like Bill, at, at Clinton Foundation events, you know, sitting next to Hillary. And, and, um, I've seen Kagame, you know, at the UN many times, um, again, because he's like seen as this development leader. Um, so you do wonder if Hillary Clinton is the next president, how 
you know, their personal relationship, and I do believe they have a personal relationship, might affect, uh, you know, the, the, the future of Rwanda and the future of U.S.-Rwandan relation. So we all want Rwanda to develop. We all want to see a Rwanda in which violence is less likely, in which repression is less likely, in which Rwandans are able to exercise their rights and live a life of possibility. And unfortunately, Bill Clinton has chosen to support a man who crushes the very same rights that Clinton cherishes in his own country. And I think there's something incredibly hypocritical about that. Clinton, on his last visit to Rwanda, I believe, that was in 2013, I was still in Rwanda at the time, he said about Kagame's repression of the press, he said, I didn't like the press either when I was president. And I suppose I'm willing to make more allowances for a government that produce as much progress as this one. And I think that's so incredibly condescending and misguided. Uh, It's condescending to the Rwandan people because they, like us, deserve the full scope of human rights that we enjoy. And why would we just say to them, uh, here's peace and here's some money and that should be enough for you? Uh, What this misguided policy has led to is increased repression and violent transitions of power that have taken the country many, many steps backwards. Uh, Prior to the genocide, Rwanda was also praised as a beacon of stability and progress in a troubled region, and donors poured money into Rwanda, praising it for its efficient deployment of those funds. We're in a somewhat similar situation today, and Fokagame has destroyed any opposition and alienated any possible successor to the presidency, uh, any independent sources of power. So the future for Rwanda looks kind of bleak. And yes, you're right, were Hillary Clinton to be elected president of the United States, given their personal relationship with Pokagame, it looks likely that that would only reinforce Kagame's power and make more likely the prospect of future violence in Rwanda. And this is something Rwandans don't deserve. All right. Well, Anjan, thank you so much for your time. I really look forward to reading your book and I recommend others check it out as well. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can get in touch with me at globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. We'll see you next time. Bye.